Now hear a reading from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. The whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. And the Lord said, If as one people all sharing a common language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there across the face of the entire earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world, and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Amen. Uh, so when I was in college, I was in a number of plays and musicals because I was a really cool guy. Um, and one of the shows I was in was called The Miracle Worker. And The Miracle Worker is the story of Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan. It's a really cool story. And the, the character that I played in that show was Captain Keller, Helen's father. Um, and, you know, he wasn't the greatest character to play. I didn't really enjoy uh, my, my time playing him because um, he was this really harsh figure, right? Like, he was, he was a cruel guy. He was easily angered. He was insensitive. He never seemed to really understand Helen's needs or care much for them in a paternal kind of way. Uh, so, you know, not awesome. Didn't really love playing that character. Uh, well, one night during the show, uh, a good buddy of mine came to see it. Uh, and afterwards, you know, we connected, and I asked him kind of the, the typical questions you ask after a performance. Did you like it? Was I compelling? Um, what was your overall impressions of the show? Just what did you think? Give me, give me your feedback. And he paused and grimaced a little bit, which also wasn't awesome. Um, and said, if I'm honest, like I, I felt sick to my stomach for a lot of that. Like I felt so tense. And at points, I wanted to leave the theater and catch my breath. And then I decided I shouldn't act anymore. No, it wasn't that. Uh, it was deflating feedback, but as I kind of pressed into it a bit, he was like, it just made me feel so tense. Like every, every opportunity your character had to do the right thing, he chose wrong. Like every time he was presented the opportunity to be a good father, he, he, he walked away from that chance, just left it on the table. And I think that is a, a really fine articulation, actually, of how I've felt to this point in our first 11 chapters of Genesis, right? Like, we're 10 pages into our Bible, and it seems like every opportunity 
humanity is given to do the right thing, we choose wrong. And, you know, we've had the benefit of, you know, parsing this out over a number of weeks uh, and just divvying it up in bite-sized pieces like we get breathing space in between each story. But again, we are like 10 pages into our Bible and it's rebellion narrative after rebellion narrative after rebellion narrative. Uh, you, can, you can throw it up, Bethany. So far, just to recap our tragic history, we've had the story of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, Cain killing Abel, uh, Lamech, who was weirdly proud of murdering somebody, maybe murdering multiple people. Um, we have the flood narrative that's all about how humanity had become uniquely corrupt, that just every thought they had was evil. They were violent all the time. Even right after the flood narrative, we have the story of Noah's just drunken stupor and cursing Ham and his line. And now in 11, we have Babel. And you could be, you could be forgiven for sure. If you looked at this list of rebellion narratives and thought like, yeah, I get why, especially the top few, deeply grieved God. I get why those were obvious and clear failures. But Babel feels different, right? Like, on its surface, Babel sounds like it's a good thing. Like, well, the people are unified. They're innovative. They're ambitious. They're collaborative. You know, like, what's, what's the problem with that? And so what? They built a city and they built a tower. Not for nothing, we live in a city. Our church is named after that city. We have towers in this city. We can see towers from this city. Like, what has gotten God so bothered? Like, why would he react the way he was to this story? What? could possibly be the big deal? Well, I'm delighted you asked. Let's talk a bit about it. <laughs> so the first, the first way to respond to that question, perhaps the most obvious, if, if you've ever heard this, pre, this text preached before, it's probably what you've heard. Um, it's the thing that jumps off the page the most when you initially read the text. It's just simply their, their hubris, their pride, right? Um, I mean, because we hear it right away in verse 4. Um, yeah, Bethany, you're tracking. Thank you. Um, when it says, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Like, we want our name to be the one to linger on the mind of generations to come. We want them to look back on history and remember us. The scholar Alan Richardson uh, talks about how for humanity, and I, I thought this was kind of a, a haunting idea, but had to agree with, that humanity, one of our driving factors, one of the things that pushes us the most is our fear of anonymity. Like we hate the thought that we'll do something and people won't see it. Even more so, we're, we're terrified the thought that we'll do something and people won't appreciate it. The way Richardson describes humanity is, he says, we are credit seekers and we are glory hounds. Yikes. Thanks, Alan. And, you know, he's right. There's a reason that things like Instagram exist. You know, that's just, that's just the market's solution to capitalize on that natural human impulse, right? Like, that's our compulsions made profitable. It gives us the opportunity to be what we really want to be, and that's just 
our own biggest promoters. And it's hugely reminiscent of what compelled Eve in the garden at the very beginning, right? Like, Eve, listen, you can make your name great. You can be like God. You can advance far beyond where you are now in intellect and wisdom. Just take it. That was the very lie that Eve fell prey to. And so this tower that they had constructed, what we call the Tower of Babel, was a monument of human pride, right? Like it existed to make their name great for generations. And it says, whose top was in the heavens. Now, this is a really telling phrase. Uh, it's translated into English, top being in the heavens. The real Hebrew word describing kind of the, the, the top of the structure is the word head. You know, this structure whose head will be in the heavens. Why is that significant? Well, because calling the top of a building at its head is not a common turn of phrase in the Hebrew language. In fact, it's only done one other time. And that one other instance is in Daniel 3, when Nebuchadnezzar constructs this structure. And he says, look, it's 90 feet tall. It's made purely of gold. Its head is in the heavens. And he orders people multiple times a day to bow down and to worship this thing. And also, not for nothing, in Daniel 3, this story where he sets up his idol is the Valley of Shinar, the exact same place that Babel is said to be. So they are doing the same thing here in Genesis 11. This tower they construct is, is a monument to make their name great, and even more so, it's a temple that they have consecrated to themselves. And so, given that that was what this was supposed to represent, that's what this was supposed to be, God's response is just incredible. Like, I love it. Because I'm a very sarcastic and snarky person, and the way the author depicted God's response was actually meant to be satirical. Like, it was meant to be silly and sarcastic. Like, it was supposed to be funny. We don't get to see it in the English, but the arranging of the consonants in the Hebrew, the way they kind of just ping-pong back and forth, was a literary device indicating kind of satire and sarcasm. So when God says to the heavenly assembly, when watching them build, like, oh no, what are we going to do? They're going to become so powerful that I won't have any say for them anymore. It's almost an argument of lunacy. Like, God towers over their tower, right? And the language is even funny. Like, you know, they're, they're building this massive monument to declare to the world how great they are. And I don't know if you caught it in the text, but it says that God has to come down to see it. Like, he has to stoop down low to get a glimpse of their mighty tower. Just the argument from lunacy, thinking that man's greatness can in any way contend or even approach the greatness of God. Like the author wants us to know that's silly. So why did God hate this Babel? Hubris, that's number one. They were worshiping themselves. But there's a few more because I have a chart with two more columns. 
So, so Nimrod was the name of the man who founded this city and initiated the building of the tower. Um, and Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. Now, might anyone think of a reason why a near relative of Noah might be interested in constructing something that towered high into the heavens? This structure was supposed to be floodproof, right? Like this was supposed to be at the center of their city, existing as a contingency plan for their survival. In fact, what it really did was show humanity in competition with God. Something in the heavens to communicate to him and to save them from him. Like, I know you've promised to never flood the earth again. And you even went as far as to put a symbol in the heavens indicating that that's true. Frankly, I don't buy it. And I'm going to put my own symbol in the heavens to remind you that it's not going to work again. Like, it's almost this smug daring of God. Like, try it. Try it again. I dare you. Send a flood. We're ready this time. What we have constructed is going to protect us from you. So, so far, this tower is a temple to humanity, and it is a monument of mistrust and competition with God. Awesome. That's, that's enough reason to condemn it right there. Uh, but there's one more. Um, the last reason God took real issue with the city and with this tower is because it kept them from scattering. Now, this seems like the most muted or vanilla or of any of them. Like, all right, big deal. Yeah, humanity wants to be together. But you have to remember that it was God's plan for humanity to scatter over the face of the earth. He says it to Noah, or to Adam, and then he says it again to Noah after the flood. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, increase upon it, and be my representatives in all of creation. You bear my image, so go represent me in every corner of this world. His plan for creation was for it to be represented to by his people. And also not for nothing, but he made all of it and it was good and he wanted them to experience it. Like every part of creation has my fingerprints on it. It was my idea and I called it good and I want you to have it. Like go, Yosemite's over there somewhere, like go find it. And they, they decide to reject the call to be his representatives. They don't get to experience him by seeing all that he has made, his beautiful handiwork, and rather they just decide it's better to hunker down where they are. And it wasn't like this was some passive decision, like, you know, shoot, never got around to moving about. Like, no, it was active disobedience. We get it again in verse 4. Um, when they say, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its head in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And hear this. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the earth. You know, we'll be forced to do that thing that God asked us to do. So to recap, what we've seen in this story, the people were deeply concerned with honoring themselves 
They viewed God as their enemy who they needed to protect themselves from, and they openly rejected what he asked them to do. So, okay, yeah, sure, we can agree. This, this is a major failure on par with everything we saw in our rebellion lists. So God just wasn't making a big deal out of nothing. But, like, now what? Do we just kind of resign ourselves to yet another story of rebellion? Like, do we just kind of look at these first humans and scoff at their failure? Like, it, it does us no good to chart their missteps, you know, parsing out their failure and then do nothing about it ourselves, right? Like, that's the point of every sermon. We got we to gotta apply this thing. So what do we do? What do we learn from the failure of these people? And I think it's really important uh, to use kind of their, their sins of, you know, hubris, contingency, and disobedience as our categories. But rather than kind of parsing them out into three for us, the more, the more I spent time with this and the more I thought about it, I kind of saw uh, a consistent theme that ran through this rebellion narrative and each of the rebellion narratives that came before them. And it's fame and domination of all things. That's what humanity is ultimately after in a number of different ways we are as well. Fame and domination. And yeah, there's probably no one in this room who's actively pursuing like national or global fame, right? Like, Hollywood is nobody's next stop in this room. Like, sorry. That's just <laughs> the reality of it. And yet, we can still routinely be deeply interested in making our own names great for the point of domination. We create platforms for ourselves, right? You know, social media and otherwise, we create these platforms to announce our stories to the world. And in doing so, we, we, we feign this importance. Um, there's a, a philosopher who I'll probably not say his name right, so, you know, whatever. Um, Alain de Botton. Uh, yeah, nailed it. Um, who, who speaks of fame and says, fame is deeply attractive to humanity because it seems to offer very significant benefits. The fantasies go like this. When you are famous, wherever you go, your good reputation will precede you. People will think well of you because your merits have been impressively explained in advance. Like, yeah, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to walk into a room and automatically be thought well of? to automatically be accepted. And that's, that's what he's saying. That's like, you don't have to do the hard work of being accepted anywhere you go anymore. Like, that work has been done. You are pre-approved of whatever room you walk into. Like, that's the promise of fame. Your reputation, your talent, your merits, the way you live your life, your stories will go before you and endear people to you before you ever even walk into the room. Why, why, why does that matter to us? Why is that something we're interested in? I would argue it actually comes from a really good place, but we're deeply afraid of the opposite being true. 
right? Like Devouten goes on to say, the desire for fame, the desire to be dominant, has its roots in the experience of neglect. No one would want to be famous who hadn't also, somewhere in the past, been made to feel extremely insignificant. I'm going to read that again because it's just real nice. No one would want to be famous who hadn't also, somewhere in the past, been made to feel extremely insignificant. So really, the desire to make our own name great, why we're interested in doing that work, is because we are frantically pursuing some sense of security. Relational security is what we're after. It's ensuring that pain or rejection or feeling forgettable or small isn't going to be true of our story anymore. Uh, I, know, I know many of you have uh, been quite charmed by the show Ted Lasso. I happen to be one of those people. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, because uh, I'm not getting as many nods as I anticipated, <laughs> um, Ted, now, now I'm like conjuring a synopsis, that's cool. Um, Ted is this lovable misfit. Um, he's from Kansas and through a series of weird circumstances finds himself as a professional soccer coach in London. And he knows very little about the game. And he's very much in place like, you don't know what you don't know. He is just lovably naive. Well, anyway, Ted has this assistant coach, Nate. Uh, and over the course of the season, Nate becomes increasingly convinced that the only reason the team is having any success at all is because of him. Like, Ted could work himself out of the equation. He doesn't matter. Nate is the reason for the team's success. And Nate, as the assistant coach, then becomes increasingly frustrated that he's not getting the credit he feels like he's entitled to, right? Like, he, he, he desires to be praised. He desires for the team's success to be attributed to him. He wants the team to make his name great. In fact, there are a few instances where this does happen, you know, kind of the talking heads on TV, the pundits, you know, speak very highly of him in brief little instances. And, you know, there's online forums that just say how clever he is and how, you know, great his tactics are. And he just laps those things up in a, like, annoying kind of way. Like, he becomes truly obsessed with what these other people are saying about him to the point that he you know, pays attention to the team less. And, you know, you as the viewer become increasingly annoyed with Nate. Like, this is, is a really off-putting quality that you don't want to watch anymore. And then we're given something really unique, and that's a look into Nate's backstory that kind of softens you to him immediately. Like, you see Nate's relationship with his father. You hear about Nate's relationship with his father, how he has always been striving for his father's approval, and he hasn't gotten it. Any good thing he does, he kind of, like, puts on display in his dad's face, and his dad could care less. In fact, there's a really compelling scene where he goes to a restaurant, and he wants a, a particular table, and he's not given it because the hostess looks him up and down, and she's just not impressed. Like, he's a short, kind of doughy guy. So Nate, then, his response to this, his solution for the pain he's felt, is to very sheepishly walk into the office of their PR manager and ask, 
can you help make me famous? Like he's decided that generating a name for for himself is his solution to feeling small, rejected, forgettable ever again. Fame becomes the answer to his father's rejection. He so deeply wants that approval, and his best strategy is, I guess I have to make myself more important. And just like Nimrod constructed this tower thinking, I, I, I'm not going to be vulnerable like the people who were before me. I'm not going to be susceptible to pain in the same way that they were. We also make every contingency for ourselves lacking the pre-approval of our God, right? We work so hard to make ourselves important so we can generate this fabricated approval. It's, it's silly. Um, we, we don't trust that he's already promised to accept us. We don't really trust that he's promised provision. We take it upon ourselves to force the issue of acceptance and to provide for ourselves. Um, and, and guys, I think like this room that we're in, for me, is like a pretty haunting example of that reality being true. Um, what do I mean? Uh, well, I, I love LCC more than I love most things. Like, that's, that's the truth. Uh, Bailey and I have talked about before, like, LCC is the best part of living in Denver. Like, we just love this church. Um, and it is so important to us that anytime it feels, you know, like, threatened or, or vulnerable, like, I freak out. And so when we had the prospect of us moving to a new location, that was a really scary thing to me. Like, and it brought me face to face with this reality, like, oh, shoot, unless I work incredibly hard and, like, make for us a good thing, like, LCC could be gone tomorrow. Like, that is silly. And so I obsessed over this space. I obsessed over, like, where we would go to next. And in conversations with the Father, since, like, I've had to confess to him. Is he like, did you, did you really think that the only thing keeping my bride unified was the life center? Like, that's crazy. Like, no, my promises are far more robust than even your best ideas of contingency can provide. Lean back into my acceptance and my provision. And so then lastly, you know, talking the three categories, how does, how does fame and domination relate to a scattering? Why does that matter? Well, it, it's simple. We go to the places where we're best known, right? Like those are our favorite places. We go to the places that ultimately celebrate us. We go to the places that serve our needs. We go to the places that meet our interests. When God has asked us to go to all hard places and represent him there. He says, go to the neighbor who doesn't like you and represent me there. Go serve the neediest among you, the very people who could never repay your efforts and represent me there. And then weirdly, Go love your enemy, the least likely person on planet Earth to celebrate you or acknowledge just how great your name is. Go there and represent me. 
And to all of that, we'd say, you know, I'd really rather not. I'd rather find the places where my name is most great, and I want to stay there. And again, what's what's gut-wrenching, these things we want aren't bad, not really. Wanting to be relationally elevated and secure and known, it's not bad, it's just that we try to generate them for ourselves when God has already promised to fulfill those needs. I mean, a few verses later, I'm I'm peeking into Genesis 12. He's going to say to Abraham, listen, I will make your name great. And then we read in the uh, Gospels that he says, I have raised you with me and I have seated you with me in the heavenly places. Like you're trying to build this tower to get to the heavenly places. Stop. That's your ultimate destination, but I'm the way you get there. So perhaps, as we think of all these things in connection with one another, we could add one more error to our story of errors. And that would be trying to do for ourselves the work that God has already promised to do. Um, As we've gone through Genesis, we've we've used the word chiasm a few times. It's a literary device. um, And what what a chiasm is... Uh, it's, it's this way of writing that depicts ultimate meaning by mirroring. Um, so, you know, it, it'll, it's a way of telling a story, and the first thought will align with the last thought. The second thought will align with the second to last thought. And the thought that's right smack dab in the middle is the key idea of the entire story. And our rebellion narratives, many of them are chiasms, our most important three to this point Uh, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of the flood, and now the story of Babel, all chiasms as well. And in the middle of each of these chiasms are these three lines. In the Adam and Eve story, the line is, God called to the man. In the flood narrative, the middle line is, God remembered Noah. And in the Babel story, it's, God came down. So God's response to their rebellion, his response to our rebellion, is to call, is to remember, and to come down. In the middle of their disobedience, literally, in the literary middle, is a God who is active, doing for them the things that the rest of the story around it is all about. We see a God calling, we see a God remembering, and we see a God coming down. It's funny reading this story about a city, you know, God's dissatisfaction with the city, knowing that that is exactly what he promises, right? Like, I am giving you a new city. I am giving you a new Jerusalem. This is where I will give you citizenship. This city that I craft, sorry, Nimrod, both the name and the insult, um, will be a secure, belonging place for you. But not a place where you make your own name great. I'm not interested in you doing that. But a place where we make great the name of God. Revelation has a very compelling picture of what life in this city is like. When the author says to 
God, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased us for God. Persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne, as well as the living creatures and the elders. Their numbers was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands times thousands, all of whom were singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. The picture of this city, if you heard it, is I'm going to make you elders. I'm going to make you priests. I'm going to gather all of you together. And you know what you're going to leverage that power to do? Worship me. That's what I'm interested in. That's what my city, the city that I craft for you and I'm giving to you will be like. One where I have raised you and seated you next to me in the heavenly places. Given you a type, an elder, a priest. And I'm going to undo the curse of Babel. I scattered you from that city. I'm going to call you all back to this city. And I'm going to give you a common tongue. And what you'll do with that common tongue is you'll worship me. You will be making my name great. And then reading forward a few chapters in Revelation, and I love it very much, after he's called them back together, after he's given them a common tongue with which to worship him, he also seats them at a common table, right? Revelation 20, it's the wedding supper of the Lamb. We've come together. We've been given citizenship and security in this new city. Once again, speaking in a common tongue, and he places us at a common table. Guys, this table is a preview of that table. When we sing together, uh, which we'll do with Canaan in just a moment, it previews that singing when we are given citizenship in that new city and a common tongue to make great the name of God. Words of Revelation, at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, who are we that you are mindful of us? Our best ideas are broken in front of you. Our biggest ambitions are so small compared to you. And yet, you have remembered us, you have called us, and you have come down to us. And now you feed us. Jesus, you're a marvel. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.